Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Tonight we're talking about sustainability and rethinking buying and building, and we have a panel of experts here to discuss that with us. We have Beth Springer, who's Executive Vice President of Clorox Company. We have Dave Steiner, who's CEO of Waste Management, and Andy Ball, who's CEO of Webcore, Webcore Builders. So please give them a Commonwealth welcome here tonight. <laughs> So let's begin, Beth, with you talking about what's some of the big and exciting things that are happening in consumer goods that you see where companies, Clorox or others, have an opportunity to create more sustainable products and create you know, something that's more lower carbon. Thanks, Greg. Uh, you know, I think there are some things that have been going on in consumer goods for many years that may not make the... Uh, might not meet the standard of exciting, but I think they're important. And it's really, it's reducing packaging, right? Um, we can do it all the time without changing what consumers have to do. And it's probably the single most important thing the industry's been doing to reduce footprint. Mm -hmm. I'd say beyond that, it's reducing transportation, you know, getting things in the right place the first time. Some of the things that are more visible and are probably more exciting to those of us in the industry are the growth of products where consumers are actively choosing something because it has a lower carbon footprint or it's more sustainable in some other way or healthier. And I really think that's the movement to organic food, to sustainable agriculture, to natural personal care, to natural household care. And um, you know, what's exciting about that, I think, is both that consumers are making a difference through what they buy, but they're also showing us. They're voting with their wallets. They're telling us they care about the my environment and the environment benefits as much as they care about the primary category benefits. Well, I want to come back to break down a little bit about who those uh, consumers are by age, et cetera. But let's go next to, to Andy Ball, WebCore Builders. We all know about green buildings, but what's really exciting and innovative uh, going on in, in the building sector? Well, we've been uh, looking at LEED-rated buildings, and, and LEED is a wonderful way to measure the environmental efficiency and design of the buildings that we build. Uh, we just finished the California Academy of Sciences building, which if you haven't been there, you need to go because it's an absolutely, not only a wonderful building, it's a wonderful example of how to build green with a big green roof. So as we move on from that, and what's next is, is really carbon footprint. It's looking at the cradle to grave or cradle to cradle use of all the materials that we put in the building. And buildings are, are really fairly simple. We use metals, we use concrete, we use glass. And as you look at that, uh, measuring each one of these different materials and what it takes to mine the product, to manufacture the product, fabricate it, to transport it, to put it in place, and then what happens after uh, the building is torn down and it's recycled is a new way of looking at what the real impact on the environment is. And so we're pretty excited. We just, uh, just teamed up just a few days ago with uh, Climate Earth to, to actually measure the carbon use on a, on a cradle-to-cradle uh, product analysis. That's a consulting company? It, it, it is, okay. yes. And what we found is that there's really very bad information that's available today. Uh, if we were to compare, if you were to go to the Athena site and look at what the carbon use is for steel versus concrete, what they have actually are doing is, is doing a recycled steel meltdown, basically the final stage of that, excluding all of the mining, the transportation, the you know, going from iron, pig iron to, to steel. It's just the very final step. And then comparing that to cement, and a lot of people interchange cement and concrete. But cement is actually a gray powder that comes from blasting limestone and turning it into the powder. And then that's mixed with sand and gravel and water. And so if you look at that, the cement is actually 8% of the total product, whereas 80% is sand and gravel, and the rest is water. And we could actually reduce the energy cost by half just by using fly ash, a byproduct, a recycled byproduct, and mixing that in and using about 4% cement and 4% fly ash. And so as you start to really analytically look at the amount of energy that is used in producing these and recycling these, 
and what the impact is of the environment. There's some really exciting things there with carbon footprinting, global warming potential, and we have material safety and data sheets right now and all the materials we have, but it doesn't say, well, what's the impact on the environment or what's the energy consumption? What's, and that, I think, is a place that we can go. Thank you. Uh, Dave, we, we put you in the middle because you're where it all comes together. Uh, <laughs> it all flows uh, downhill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, consumer waste, commercial waste, construction waste, uh, well, in your trucks, to your sites. So what's changing in your industry? What's big and exciting that we may not know about? Yeah, well, you know, when I think about sustainability, we'll talk about it internally, externally. You know, internally, we set goals as to what we're going to do. You know, today, we manage about 8 million tons of recyclables. We said that within the next 10 years, we're going to make that 20 million tons. We're going to basically triple that. Uh, we create enough energy out of waste to power about a million homes. We're going to double that. I think we'll double that in the next five years. Uh, we talked about... How do you create that energy? Uh, we create that energy two ways. One, by taking waste and either burning it or we're looking at new technologies to change the waste actually into energy, or we create it uh, by taking uh, the methane that is naturally produced by the biodegradation of the waste in our landfills and take that methane and use it to power turbines. So rather than flaring it, rather than letting it go into the environment, by the way, methane is about 22 times worse than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, we now take it and create energy out of it. So not only avoid the emission into the, uh, uh, into the air, but also actually use it to create energy. Uh, so, and then uh, we, we have land around our, our landfill sites that we're creating wildlife habitats. We have uh, uh, about 50. We're going to turn that into a, over 100 uh, in the next few years. And so internally, we're doing a lot of things. Externally, we took the approach of how do we work with customers? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned fly ash because we produce fly ash in our waste energy plants, right? And generally, we use that as cover at a landfill or you put it into a monofill. We've been looking for ways to reuse our fly ash. But what we're trying to understand is sitting with each of our customers and saying, okay, we used to look at waste in our company as a linear chain. Uh, once it came out the back of, uh, or once it came off of your work site or the back of a plant or out of each of your homes, it went into our truck. It took a linear ride either to a waste energy plant, recycling plant, or a landfill, and then it left us again, and we never saw it again. So we never saw it before it was produced, and we never saw it after it left our hands. We now say, you know, we've got to understand how we create a circular chain. Not a linear chain, but a circular chain. So, uh, for example, uh, we work with one of our customers who creates an iconic doll that anyone who has a daughter has one in their house. Uh, and, and, her, and her name is? <laughs> her boyfriend's name is Ken. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they said, you know, we create this doll, but this, the, there's a lot of plastic in it, but it's not recyclable. Can you help us engineer a doll that becomes recyclable? And that's when we understood we have responsibility well before it hits the back end of your house or the back end of their manufacturing plant. We need to get into the loop of how it's engineered so that we can make sure it's recyclable. Uh, you know, so right now we're working with Walmart to, to bring Walmart to zero waste in California. And we do that by, instead of it used to be we drove a truck by, we picked it up. Now we're saying let's go into the store and understand all the materials that are there and all the materials that we can manage. We do it with, with the automobile manufacturers creating a lot of waste. How do we go in and show you how you can manage those materials? We like to say that, that we're no longer waste management. We're materials management. We're, we're working with our customers to understand the whole life cycle of it. And so now we're, we're learning how to obtain it. Now we've got to learn how to reuse it. The fly ash, for example. Uh, if we can take it, burn it, and create energy, and then use the fly ash to create cement, now you're creating that closed loop where you're creating that circular chain. And that's that's what's exciting to our company is, is working with our customers to start t attaching the links of the chain that before no one really understood that there was a chain. Now we understand there is a chain. Now how do we attach the link? And what's driving this? I mean, you're talking about what's sometimes called producer responsibility. What's causing, I mean, Beth, you're a producer. What's causing producers to think differently or more expansively about the responsibility of the products that they produce, and then I guess us for the products that we consume. So what are the drivers that are sort yeah. of... You know, first and foremost, it, it makes money, right? I mean, uh, you know, look, Walmart is going to do everything they can to have low prices at the store. Uh, you know, Beth is going to do everything she can to make sure that they're producing things at their lowest cost. 
you know, I always say there's three things that drive radical change. There's, there's governmental uh, intervention. Uh, so, for example, in California, you have laws that mandate recycling. There's consumer preferences. I guarantee you, Beth understands that consumers are saying, we want a more Earth-friendly product. You know, certainly, you know, Andy's customers, our customers, they're all saying, we want a more Earth-friendly product. And then there's the economics, right? I mean, it, it all has to tie back to, to make sense. Uh, you know, there are plenty of people that will build a building, buy a product that might cost more. There are some that won't. And so how do we uh, understand how we can make it revenue neutral, how we can actually make them save money by producing less? I mean, sometimes that sounds hard to do, uh, but that's the business model we've developed. We have folks that will go in and say, here's how you can use less, recycle more, bring down the total cost of your waste. And, you know, look, if, if you have the government, the consumer, and the businesses all working together to a common goal, you know, that's how you have fundamental change. So let's pick up on price for a moment. Beth, what are consumers willing to pay? How much more are consumers willing to pay for a product that's described as green in some way? That's a very good question, and I think it depends a lot on the consumer. You know, there's probably a small percentage of consumers who would change what they're buying. They'd pay more because it's the right thing to do for the planet, for the next generation. And depending on the study you read, you might think that group is a few percent, maybe it's 10 percent. Um, I think what we find with most consumers, um, based both on what they say and what they do, is that people will pay a little bit more for something that has what we call my environment benefits and they'd like to get the environment benefits for free. So in other words, um, if you can help people understand that what makes them feel that what they're consuming or using around their home is safer or somehow preferred in the home, and it's also better for the environment, then you get that, that twofer. In today's economy, I think the premium people are willing to pay is gonna go down. So maybe, maybe you could have gotten the majority of people if it wasn't inconvenient to pay 15, 20% more on an inexpensive item to get a, a natural product or a more sustainable product a year ago. I think we're gonna be challenged now to bring together affordability and sustainability. And one of our goals is to try to get those premiums to zero. You know, what can we do in the way we produce? What kind of technology can we use so that you wouldn't have to ask people to pay 10, 15, 25% more, you could get it to you know, 1% or zero percent more. Andy, how about for buildings? Obviously, much larger ticket item, uh, but what sort of, what's the price differential for a, a LEED or a green building? Um, what we like to say is that it doesn't cost any more to have a LEED certified building. Uh, it's really just a matter of understanding what it takes, because a lot of the things are in, a, in the, the correct site selection. If you are in a downtown environment, if you're close to public transportation, uh, you get points for that just by having lead accredited uh, professionals on board, which we have 120 now. You get points for that. By being innovative, the California Academy of Science, they just establish a program there uh, to educate people on how the building saved energy, and they got a point for that. So as you go through it, there's an amazing number of points that you can get, and you can sort of go through and harvest the points and find out that even though you're not even trying to get there, you can pick up about 21, and you only need to get to 24 to, to be certified. So it's, it's, uh, it really is a matter of education. And so when we started this, it wasn't uh, anything other than we felt it was the right thing to do. And, and, and as we internally looked at it, and, and then a lot of our employees said, gee, we want to be part of a company that can make a difference, we decided to drive that forward. And we started to participate with cities, because certainly government can lead the way. Uh, we uh, chaired the council for uh, the Mayor's Green, Green Building Task Force. And as you start to say, well, let's, let's level the playing field. Let's establish reasonable uh, requirements uh, to go to certified, to go to silver, to go to gold over a time frame. Uh, suddenly, if everybody has to do it, uh, and it's just a little bit more, and you do it wisely, you level the playing field so it really doesn't cost anybody any more relative to what the competition is doing. And that's what it's all about, really. We want to include your audience questions, so there's question cards there. If you'd like to uh, write on those as we go along, that'd be really helpful to include your questions uh, in the conversation. Uh, let's drill down a little bit on, on demographics in terms of uh, you know who's who's driving this and, and some of the demographics and maybe psychographics of the people that are doing this. Um, 
Beth, you're the cons- probably the most consumer-facing company here. Uh, what are uh, let's focus on younger people in terms of their attitudes, and, and what are you seeing there in terms of their you mean people like us? The, right. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's right, people under yeah. eighty. Yeah, <laughs> the, I believe the millennial generation is what people under thirty. Yeah, so no. <laughs> <laughs> When we look at, um, we really look at two groups of, of younger people, the people who are consuming our products and the people who work for us, uh, and then we find both give us a lot of insight. We, I would say we definitely see that on average you have much more concern for my environment and the environment among younger people. I think they came of age during a time when they were reading a lot more about, about these issues. I think they have a greater sense that they need to take responsibility for personal well-being, for the planet's well-being. So I think that turns into the way pe- changes the way people vote, changes the way people purchase, it changes the way they consume. And um, we certainly see that some of our more um, obviously sustainable products, Burt's Bees, Brita water filters, et cetera, they have a, a young skew in their growth. And um, we also see in our employees, particularly our younger employees, that they both want to know that our products are sustainable and they want to see us making changes in the way we operate broadly, not just the things we sell, but they're very excited about the campaign to turn the lights out that we have right now or the campaign to reduce paper usage. And they end up being the first to volunteer and the most active in our eco networks around the around the company. And I think this is a lot about what the, what the marketplace is going to look like in 10 or 15 years. And also you told me earlier, we were talking on the phone, that uh, printers are a controlled substance inside That's Clorox. Right. That you have to get special permission to buy a printer you because do. it's a dangerous... Uh, yeah. Well, and you know, we find that just giving people information is one way to motivate behavioral change, right? So we have lots of little green hands around the building right now next to light switches reminding you to get caught green-handed, turn the lights out when you don't need them. But we also know that you need some some sticks in there as well. So having to fill out a form to get a printer, having to think about why you need to print so much causes people to not buy as many printers. And in one quarter, we got our paper paper usage went down 40% simply by letting people know you can print double-sided now, read from the screen, and making it harder to buy a printer. So I think that says a lot about what we can accomplish individually and as businesses um, with some of the small changes, in addition to the game-changing kinds of things that we do with regulations and technology and big product innovation. How is this younger demographic affecting, Dave or Andy, your business? It, it's, Andy? it's huge. It's, uh, it really is a grassroots movement, and it's, it's fun to watch. Um, when we started down this road, I was sort of slow to warm and, and then it became pretty obvious that this was the right thing to do, and it was everything, no matter what your beliefs are about the environment, all the policies end up driving towards the middle, which is that everything is good. Uh, good environmental use, good energy use, uh, just, just good practice. And uh, it's sort of like saying we may have different political uh, ideas, but if you just dr- drive right to the center, we, we share a common platform almost any direction that you take. And it's, it's just really, really good stuff. And so we established both the external uh, green department, which really was heavily focused on lead and how we could could provide that service to our clients. And Can you explain? I think a lot of people know what lead is, but you might. It's leadership in in in, in uh, energy and environmental design. Okay. And uh, again, it's it's uh, I have the sheet right here. It breaks down into sustainable sites, uh, fourteen points, water efficiency, five points, energy and atmosphere, seventeen points. Materials and resources, 13 points. Indoor environmental quality, 15 points. And innovation and design process, five points for a total of 60, 69 possible points. And then that breaks down anywhere from 24 to 69 to be LEED certified uh, at the minimum to uh, silver, gold, and platinum. And it really, it, it looks at a number of different things, but it was more based upon the design and the efficient use of materials, uh, the environment, <clears throat> and not using a lot of energy. Uh, and, and it was, it's, it's been great. It's been a great tool. It was established uh, by the U.S. Green Building Council, and it, it was the first and only uh, point rating system. Now there are other competing point rating systems, and there is also this carbon footprinting, which is going to be added in. So that would be the external uh, look. The internal uh, leads to not only the little green handprints, but uh, also things like we have blueprints. And uh, so what happens to our, all of our blueprints um, they, they now are on the back side of our notebooks. Uh, so this is 100% recycled content, and everybody in the company now carries these around. And it's pretty cool to, uh, to see the blueprints that used to just go 
into the trash, and now you start seeing them become uh, really handy uh, little notebooks. But there's, there's all kinds of fun policies, and, and the creativity of these groups is really fun and exciting This and in, in, in to see uh, these people come into the company. And people want to come to work for a company that has green policies. Clients want to build buildings that are green buildings. Uh, either they morally believe it's the right thing to do, or they're saying their tenants want to be renting. Uh, in green buildings. So there's a lot of different driving factors. Or the government's giving them a break. You can actually get a building permit faster if your building is a green building, which is great. That's the way it should be. And you know, anyone, anyone that runs a business knows that your business is only as good as the talent you have, right? And so if there's someone that's running a business that says, I don't get being green because it doesn't affect my bottom line, or I don't believe in it, so I'm not going to make my company more sustainable. I would tell you, look at the people you're going to be hiring over the next 15 years because they're going to go to work for your competition. If your competition is saying, look, we, we understand we're not going to make a lot of money on it. We understand that, uh, that people might differ on their views. But if we can get the best talent, we're going to win. And the talent today is going to go to the companies that they think are helping to save the planet. And so if, if for only that reason, I think every company in America ought to take a look at their company and say, what are we doing to become a greener company? And they're the kind of people you want to hire. Yeah, exactly. They're great. So it's a, Thomas Friedman's point, it's a real competitive advantage. Yeah, it's it's competitive not a hindrance, advantage. something imposed by the outsider burden. It's actually a competitive It's a competitive advantage. advantage. If you don't even see it at your bottom line, it will be a competitive advantage in recruiting that talent because that's, that's where the world is. <clears throat> particularly younger, I mean, I'm using that word, relative word again, but the future <laughs> talent, people you bring in, at, at junior people, et cetera. And it's at all levels, really. You see a lot of it at, at the younger level and coming out of college, but people are embracing it at every level. Let's talk a little bit about a return on investment. A lot of times people say that uh, uh, inside corporations that they, they want approval for uh, a new air conditioner to, to make some investment, and, and the, the payback period is shorter than is, is required uh, that their boss won't give them something to pay back in five years. They want to pay back in three years. What kind of ROI time frame do you have inside your company for approving um, investments that might have some uh, energy savings or environmental impact? We have different timelines for different kinds of expenditures, but I think what we've generally been able to find is that, you know, green is lean and lean is good in many cases. So often the things you want to do to reduce your energy consumption, your total footprint, you know, avoid wastewater are also things that you can do to save money. And so we've been in the fortunate position so far of generally being able to have a twofer. We have had lots of conversations, though, about what will happen when we have a project that has a zero return. And how will we find a way to meet our shareholder requirements and still do that project if we feel it's fundamentally the right thing to do? If it's the right thing to do to make the operation more sustainable, if it's the right thing to do to manage reputation risk. And we haven't faced that one yet, but we know it's out there someday in the future. Well, other than, than zero return, how about something that just has a longer return than you would like? Uh, because you're a you're public traded company, you have to sort of, you know... I think it would be the, the, the same, same thing. issue. Yeah. Yeah. You sound like uh, when you say you... you parse out capital uh, sparingly. It sounds like you've been to our budget meetings over the last uh, <laughs> over the last year. You know, we're in a pretty enviable position, frankly. Uh, every American uh, produces, on average, four and a half pounds of what they call waste every day, and you give it to us. You give it to us. We come. You gladly put it out, and we take it. And that material has value. You know, we sat down and, and looked at it. Uh, we're a company of uh, $13, $14 billion of revenue. That material that you all are giving to us uh, before commodity prices went down was probably worth 8 to $10 billion, and you're handing it to us. And so our job is to say, how do we extract that value out of it, right? And then ultimately, how do we share that value with the customer? How can we, how can we tell the customer, you know what? Uh, the problem is we can't extract the value out of that. Perfect example is the building sites, right? I mean, uh, uh, Andy's company is so far ahead of every other company in what they do with their building sites because they realize if we separate that material, there's value in that material, we can get that money back, right? And so if we are able to go to our customers, a builder, and say, look, let us show you how if you do these five things, we can both get more value out of these materials, and you can share it, we can share it, we make more money, you make more money, 
who doesn't want to have that happen, right? And so uh, that's the beauty of our business model is that you're giving us those materials. Now if we can work with you to show you how we can put them back into that sustainability chain and create value out of it, creating value out of that waste, that's a win-win for everybody. So is it better for us to separate this in our garages and our kitchens, or is it better to have you and your machines do it? Well, that's, that's what we need. You know, it, it differs in every situation, right? I mean, in every... In every case, depends how good we are at separating it. It depends on it depends on, on our I mean, kitchen. Are you, a, are you a manufacturing plant? Are you a business? Are you a resident? Are you a you know a dry cleaner, a restaurant? Uh, it's going to differ uh, uh, in every situation. But that's that's the way we're changing our business model. You know, quite frankly, when we look at at residential collection, we never had folks that we said let's understand how to get that value. When we look at at you know. Seven years ago, we didn't have salespeople that were lead certified that went to builders and said, let us show you how to do this. We're learning it just like you all learned it as you went through the lead certification, just like you all learned it. You know, we're learning too, uh, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're now saying, okay, we are going to dedicate people that their only job is going to go to meet with those customers and say, let's find out how we find this win-win here. You know, you've got the materials, we've got the expertise, Let's figure out the best way to go about extracting that value. And that means you're talking to different people inside those companies than the, the people who are Absolutely. in charge of taking out, getting rid of the trash, right? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. We're discussing sustainability at the Commonwealth Club of California with Dave Steiner, CEO of Waste Management, Andy Ball, CEO of WebCore Builders, and Beth Springer, Executive Vice President at Clorox. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, we talked about consumers as a driver. Let's talk about the role of government and policy and, and how much of it, you know, what is the role of government in driving this? And, and is there, if there's a specific example where it sort of, you think, favorably pushed your industry forward. Andy, I mean. Well, I'd like to get back to your RRI question. Okay, sure, I, sure. Before we dive into it, I never got my opportunity to respond. Sure. So um, we started investing uh, at Cal. Uh, the Center for the Built Environment uh, a number of years ago. We became a founding partner there, and it was really to look at uh, what the payback was on a lot of different uh, systems to put in. Raised floor uh, system was, was the first one because a lot of our air conditioning comes uh, from above. You look up here, that's where, where it is. You use uh, heavy machinery, uh, l very low temperature uh, air. It's forced down into to here and mixed. It's a lot better to introduce it at a much higher temperature using less energy to create. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot friendlier environment. So we started to look at, well, what, what is a payback if you use that technology? And like most new applications, it's more expensive only because people aren't used to doing it. And so the barrier to entry is really ignorance uh, for the most part. It's disinformation. And so as you start to study different ways of doing things, you find out that, hey, you know what? Uh, people said it was just 8 to $12 a square foot more expensive. We found out that it was only about $2 a square foot more expensive and that the payback on that was very, very fast. If you started to look at productivity, which is very difficult to measure, if you started to look at the churn factor, which is you can have plug-and-play environments where you can run the cables underneath and you can very easily reorganize workspaces. Uh, so stuff that would, would, would take uh, weeks now can be done in a matter of days. So we started to break down a lot of the barriers and the myths to what people thought was the payback. And then you start to look at uh, rebate programs mm -hmm. uh, and, and what you can, you can get there. And it started to be that what we thought was a 10-year payback became uh, a two-year payback. And it's absolutely amazing as you really start to, to get into what your, your return on investment is. As you start to save energy and you change out your ballast and you change out your air conditioning, you have to be CFC compliant. And, and it, it's, uh, it's surprising what a quick payback it is. So more and more what we're finding out is, is there's now uh, statistical evidence to support that doing the right thing uh, is also the thing that pays you back. So, okay, it doesn't cost $8 a square foot, it actually costs two, but that is even a lot of money for an organization that's going to flip it into the market, condos. That's what it makes sense if you're going to own and operate a building, but it doesn't make sense to take that $2 a square foot if you're going to own and operate, if you're going to sell it to someone else, right? Are you seeing anyone who's, who's selling into a market absorb Absolutely. those costs? Awesome. Absolutely. What, what six years ago was uh, sort of breaking new territory for us is almost commonplace now. Buildings Owners and Managers Association is going around and recommending a, a whole host of the things that we looked at experimentally and now saying, no, this is the way to go.
Uh, so they're absolutely going in and changing that mechanical systems, recommending raised floor, uh, uh, going with uh, changing out the ballast, different light fixtures. Uh, you know, light fixture technology has evolved very, very quickly. I mean, there's, there's uh, LEDs now that use very, very little energy, and it's wonderful to, to see what can be done with those. So we're actually trying to package products and going and, and, and trying to reward innovative uh, people that manufacture in the United States and saying we'd like to try to recommend the use of their products in our buildings. Question from the audience, which gets back to sort of the, the policy question is, uh, San Francisco has always been somewhat in the vanguard environmental issues. What changes do you see in the rest of the country, and specifically anything that you're seeing where maybe it's ahead of San Francisco? We like to think we're ahead here, but not as green as, or as righteous as we think we are sometimes. What are you seeing in the other parts of the country? Dave you know, Randy? From, from our perspective, uh, San Francisco is at the leading edge. California is at the leading edge. If you want to, in our business, if you want to see where the innovation's happening, you go overseas. Uh, you go to Japan. Hmm. You go to some of the European countries. I mean, look, uh, it is all driven. When you look at Japan, you re recognize they don't have a lot of space to get rid of waste. You know, I mean, that's basically what it comes down to in the United States. We've got a lot of land, and it's always going to be cheaper to bury it safely in a landfill than it is to do other things with it. Japan doesn't have that option. And so they've understood how to get the value out of the materials. Uh, so I would say uh, San Francisco, California certainly is the cutting edge. Uh, but even if you go overseas, you'll find people that are even beyond where, where San Francisco is. And I, I very much agree with that. As you look around the United States, uh, San Francisco has really been at the forefront of trying to be sure that there are green buildings. Uh, again, expediting the building permit, uh, having the, the green building standards. Uh, really getting out there and, and, and uh, the, the new PUC building will be a platinum rated building. So San Francisco's done great, but I, I agree with you. As you go around the world, the world has actually been ahead of the United States very much in this. And, and whether it's Europe uh, or whether it's uh, Japan, uh, you're going to see a lot more use of uh, green building materials and technologies there. We see the same thing at, at Corox, uh, but I would also say in defense of you know, the rest of the United States. We see pretty widespread um, <laughs> consumer change. We do. Consumer awareness, consumer habit change. And, yes, it is stronger on the coast, uh, but I think we see it everywhere. And what I, I think will be interesting to watch unfold over the remainder of this year and next year is how much does it be, how much do the attitudes change as a function of the economy? You know, has becoming concerned, being concerned about my wellness, the planet, is that now considered a luxury for people regardless of location? Is it really more a function of an of employment or income. Or oil prices. Or oil prices. Yeah. I mean, how much recycling happens in the heartland? Uh, you know, when you look throughout the country, uh, you know, California has a mandate of 50% diversion. Uh, when you look on average throughout the country, it's about 30%. Uh, you know, but that ranges from some cities in California at 70 uh, and 75 all the way to some cities at 5 and below. So it, it, it ranges all over. And, and you know... Uh, a lot of it has to do with, uh, the, frankly, the value of the materials and the political will because recycling in uh, an environment today where commodity prices are low, recycling costs more. And so is there the political will to uh, charge the consumer more or is, it, uh, or, or is it more efficient to do something different? A couple of questions from the audience about recyclable materials and, and plastics in particular. Uh, we're seeing a first generation of recyclable plastic, uh, which isn't. Uh, what's the status of biodegradable recyclable plastic? And a question about uh, tons of non-recyclable plastic for uh, bleach bottles. So um, I want to make sure I understood that, that first question. So are we, is the audience member saying that there are things that we are saying are recyclable that are not? Or? That's the implication. And the question is about biodegradable, I guess. I know we're familiar with what spudware and these plastic water cups that are made out of corn or other materials that actually can uh, be biodegradable, I guess. So I'll, I'll start with the second half of that question and then open it up because I think the uh, first half is probably one that other folks can comment on. So at the Clorox company, we make lots of products. Um, we make Clorox liquid bleach, of course, but many other things. About 85% of our primary packaging, so what the actual product is that you are using, you know, it's primary container, is recyclable. 
and about 95% of secondary packaging. So that might be a carton that it goes on or um, something else that we use in transporting the product to you is recyclable. Uh, we are working on increasing the recycled content. Uh, that varies quite a bit by the product and it has to do with the availability of the material, the cost and what you're willing to pay for it and what the material can do if it's recycled. In terms of innovative plastics, um, you know, I think I would step back and say that one of the things that's been most helpful is just having materials that are stronger when they're thinner so that you can, for example, reduce the thickness of a bleach bottle 25% over time. So you can put a recycled core in the middle. In terms of more biodegradable plastics, um, you know, we see what you see, which is things like spudware are taking off and they seem to work pretty well for folks. And as a consumer, I think those are great products. What we're finding in our categories is that most of the biodegradable materials have cost or performance issues that consumers won't accept today. Uh, so maybe the product can't, the trash bag that we have that's biodegradable has some limits in terms of how you can use it. And it costs more. And so there are some folks who are buying it, but we know at this point the market isn't ready to go mainstream with a biodegradable GLAD trash bag. And we will, Dave, have to get together with you and talk about yeah. how, 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 how much you put would that your cost? waste how in much our trash bag and we give it to you and you then know, ultimately and it, and it biodegrades it's a, cheaply. It's a perfect example of, uh, because look, there are various types of plastic that cannot be quote unquote recycled in the traditional way that we think of recycling. In other words, it can't go back into that bottle, right? And it's a perfect example of where we need to sit down with someone like Clorox and say, okay, is there something that could be recycled into, right? Could it go park into benches or park go... benches? You see a lot of park benches exactly. and, you know. Exactly. And so, you know, getting on that front end and saying, okay, maybe it can't be reused to make another bottle, but maybe it can be reused to do some other things uh, is exactly the way we need to be thinking about it. You know, that's, that's our fault. We would let our customers design it and we just pick it up. Uh, that's what we've, the way we've changed our business model over the last few years. We want to sit with the customers and say, okay, how can we design this and build this so that it can be reused? It doesn't have to necessarily, you know, recycled implies that right. it's going to be recycled into the same thing. How can it be, you know, repurposed? Uh, and, you know, that's exactly what we're working with our customers to do. Beth, how much would a plastic bag, Glad bag, or, or a Clorox bottle, much, how much more would it cost if it was made out of something, uh, corn, you know, these, these cups here are made out of corn and they cost us a little bit more and, and we do it. It's not a big part of our expense, uh, but they definitely cost more. Um, how, do you have a unit cost for? No, I don't. I, could, I couldn't off the top of my head give you an accurate unit corn, uh, cost for, let's say, a corn-based trash bag or bleach bottle. I'll tell you though that the primary challenge we would have is would the product, uh, would we be able to get the product to you? Uh, and would it be functional, and would you accept the trade-offs? So, for example, if you think about using this cup and what you're going to do with this cup, you have different performance requirements for this than you do for a bottle that contains your Clorox liquid bleach or for that trash bag that you're going to put four, five, six, seven pounds of waste in and then maybe have your child dragged to the corner. And so we look both at, you know, what can we make affordable, but we also need to look at is it functional because mm -hmm. the reality is in consumer goods, that most of us want um, things to be affordable and easy, and the trade-offs that we're willing to make in those areas are are modest in most households. Mm -hmm. Certain number of people will buy those uh, what those biodegradable compost bags that cost cost quite a bit. Andy, we also have a question for you. Um, since WebCore has adopted sustainable building practices because it's the right thing to do, shouldn't you build all of your buildings lead? platinum because it's the writer thing to do <laughs> and even if it means reducing bonuses for executives so <laughs> does it say that and I'm, you know I didn't, I didn't make that up that's in greg's handwriting just for no, the record at the bottom yeah uh, unfortunately i don't think the executive bonuses are going to quite do it um we thought it was was really great to be able to uh to get 80% uh, of the buildings that we build to, uh, to at least a LEED certified standard and pushing to move things to silver and gold. Uh, but you have to look at um, what it really costs to go to platinum. And to go to platinum, uh, you're looking at significant increases. So if you look at the California Academy of Sciences and you look at what is the, 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 the main uh, green factor on that, it's the roof. And when Renzo Piano went in there, he said, my concept is to take a slice of the park, to lift it up, and put a building underneath it. And as you look down on that, it's, it's wonderful because it looks like 
part of the park. And uh, that, that roof does a lot of things. It reduces the heat island effect. It collects water. It saves water. It, it sustains itself. It, it emits uh, oxygen, sucks in carbon dioxide. Uh, but that roof was, uh, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars more uh, than a conventional roof. Um, so not not everybody can uh, sort of take uh, the the big bite without choking on it. You know, it's this this problem is is massive, and uh, so how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time, and so everybody needs to do their part. Every person, every remind household. me not to come to dinner at your house. <laughs> <laughs> We take you down about four bites. <laughs> we recycle it <laughs> and compost it. Yes. Uh, so I, I think that why, why it's great to you know do the better thing. I think that what you need to do is to do what uh, the, the the best thing is, and and that is what's what's the best thing that you can do by the most number of people. Uh, because a lot of people become immediately very daunted by the task task of recycling. So we five years ago, Webcor was putting 100% of our waste into a landfill. So you know, we need to do something about this. Today, 90% uh, of our waste is diverted. So only 10% is going into landfill. And we'd like to get that to 100% and, and working with, with your company to try and figure that out. But we've come a long way, and again, it's just step by step, trying to do what's right and trying to take it on and trying to make it practical. And uh, it is—it's uh, gratifying to see that that most companies today are are absolutely trying to do their part. And it is—if you can get a, everybody to do a little bit, you're going to you're going to be way better off than getting a few people to do a lot. Uh, so really, you should look at uh, you should look at widespread change more than you should look at sort of the absolute maximum you can do in any one area because very few people are going to be able to do it, want to do it, uh, or afford to do it. Andy Ball is CEO of WebCore Builders. Uh, Dave Steiner, we have a question from the audience for you uh, about how do you ensure that at companies like WebCore are putting less into trucks that go into landfills. That's a big part of your mis business model. So what happens to your revenue and your business model if we divert waste from landfills uh, and you're in the business of filling them up? Yeah, I mean, look, and, and you know, we can't be ashamed of being a business that is for profit, right? We are a, a publicly traded company. Uh, but this this doesn't have anything to do with what Dave Steiner thinks. This has to do with what waste management's customers think, right? I mean, uh, you know, this is what the customers are telling us they want. And we can do one of two things. We can bury our head in the sand and ignore it and watch as other folks take over this space. Or we can say, how can we find that win-win, right? The win-win is that $8 billion of material that we're picking up at the back door. And if we can extract the value out of that, we do better, our customers do better, it's what our customers want, uh, you know, it's, it, I think it makes us a bigger, better company. Can you see a day in some areas where you don't put anything in landfills, it all goes somewhere else, and you have uh, that landfills are sort of, a, I don't say dying business or dinosaurs, they'll always exist somewhere, but, but can you see a day when in certain regions you don't put anything in landfills? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, that's happening more and more right here in California, right? And so uh, our, our job is to understand how do we turn that into a viable business model. And, uh, you know, look, the, the reality is that, you know, as we talk about it, everybody, you know, when, when Andy talks about the lead certified buildings, it comes down to some people are willing to pay the price, some people aren't. And, uh, you know, putting waste into the landfill, which, which, by the way, does not harm the environment, fr frankly, there's, when you put waste into a landfill, you're taking waste that would normally biodegrade and would create carbon dioxide. If your trash sat on your curb, it would biodegrade in your curb. It would create carbon dioxide. We actually take it, we put it into the landfill. That sequesters the carbon. Uh, there are 52 categories that the EPA measures for, for carbon emissions. We sequester more carbon in our landfills every year, just our landfills, than 48 of those categories, the entire category. So, you know, for us, taking it, put it in our landfill, and then uh, sequestering that carbon, when it biodegrades and creates methane, taking that and creating energy out of it, to me, it is the ultimate in recycling, right? I mean, you know, when I look at our business, what we're trying to do is to understand how we can take every piece of our business and maximize the use out of it. Now, 
you know, there are going to be people, when we talk about consumer products, there are going to be people that are willing to pay more, and there are going to be people that aren't going to be, be willing to pay more. In our business, it's the same way. What we need to figure out is, for those people that aren't willing to pay more, how can we take what they give us, put it in the landfills, which, which is the cheaper alternative for them, and then make the best beneficial reuse we can out of it while protecting the environment? And that's exactly what we're doing when we sequester that carbon, take the methane to create energy. Well, one way to address the cost is in California, for example, there's a fee. I don't know if it's 2 or $5 when you buy a television, that cathode ray tube uh, that pays for the end-of-life disposal of that. Uh, and we have a question here, what to do about e-waste? Because a lot of people would say when that goes into landfills, it does eventually, even with liners, it's going to end up doing some bad things to water, have adverse effects. So Yeah, certainly e-waste. E-waste is is certainly an issue. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And we do not have the national footprint in e-waste that we have in solid waste or in recycling. And it's a great example. Uh, you know, I was with uh, the CEO of Lenovo Computers. And whether it's Lenovo or HP or Dell, uh, you know, they're all struggling with the issue of how do we uh, make sure that our computers, you know, end up being recycled. And that's another example of where you know, recycling computers is a very manually intensive process, which makes it very expensive. If we could get back into the engineering of the computer and understand how can we mechanize that, how can we make a more efficient line to, to deconstruct that computer. Or last longer. Or last longer. <laughs> uh, you know, if we can do that, you know, then we're able to make it, again, a win-win. You know, if they can engineer a computer that's easier for us to, to recycle, it's not going to cost as much from a producer uh, responsibility. And so that's the type of thing that where we need to work with the customers and, and back and re-engineer how, how we can solve. This is, this is a big problem. All types of electronics is a big problem. And it's something that, uh, frankly, we struggle with as a company. I think we struggle with as a, as a country. It's something that uh, I wish I could tell you we had the answer, but, but we need to work with the producers to understand what the answer is because neither one of us can do it in isolation. Dave Steiner, CEO of Waste Management. We're discussing sustainability at the Commonwealth Club of California. Also with us is Beth Springer, Executive Vice President of Clorox, and Andy Ball, CEO of WebCore Builders. Uh, Dave, another comment, question for you from the audience along that line. What are the top five consumer products that frustrate you due to their, their uh, imprint damage to the environment by volume? Worst material. What's your top five list of things? Well, that... you know, it, it, it's interesting. You know, Greg, when we, when we look at it, we, we're, what we're trying to understand is what is the entire carbon footprint of the entire operation. So, for example, you know, it's not just if you recycle uh, a plastic bottle or you recycle uh, something else, you save energy. You've also got to send a truck out in order to pick that up, right? And that adds to the carbon footprint. So we're trying to understand the overall carbon footprint. So it would be, it would be a little bit uh, uh, premature for me to say what the materials are, but, but, but generally... Uh, Come on, styrofoam's bad. We know, glass right? is an issue. Glass yeah. is an issue uh, because when you think about it, uh, people want to recycle glass into new glass. Well, there's clear glass, there's brown glass, there's green glass, there's purple glass, there's orange glass. And when you mix it all together, it makes it useless for anyone that's creating a one-color glass, right? And so certainly uh, glass is probably the most challenging material that we have. But, you know, it, it goes back again to talking about uh, working with manufacturers to understand uh, the, the entire life of the product. So, for example, everyone knows that CFLs are more energy efficient uh, uh, than, than a normal light bulb. Well, we have a company that takes those CFLs, and there's mercury in those uh, light bulbs, and we take it, we extract the mercury, reuse the mercury, reuse the glass. Interestingly, the part that screws into the socket made out of plastic, the plastic isn't recyclable because it has to have a high heat content, right? And so how do we work to make sure that that part's recyclable? And so, uh, you know, from our perspective, it's, it's the water bottles, right? The water bottles that have the, the, the paper on them contaminates the material. The, the top contaminates the material. For us, working with producers to say, okay, they, they, look, they don't understand what the issues we have in recycling the materials, and it's not their job to understand that. Mm -hmm. We don't understand the challenges they have in, in producing a bottle that is functional. 
And, but if we got together and said, okay, here are the issues we have, and they say, here are the issues we have, maybe we can come up with a solution that's a better solution. And, and that's, frankly, what we're all about, is looking for those solutions with our customers. Thanks. We have a question uh, for Beth also about Clorox uh, and the Sierra Club for, for Greenworks. You know, how much does Clorox pay the Sierra Club for the Greenworks line? Why don't you sell products in, uh, looks like, big, big containers or allow consumers to fill up their used bottles at stores like I guess people do with water? Or, yeah. you know. So uh, for people who don't know the background on that, we have a line of uh, all-natural household cleaning products under the Greenworks name. And we partnered with the Sierra Club before introducing the products and since then uh, to accomplish a couple of things. First, we knew they would hold us to a very high standard. For Sierra Club to do something that's differed from their historical policies and to work with the manufacturer and to endorse the product, they would hold us to a high standard, and they did. I think we had about 30 rounds of conversations about how to formulate, how to package, how to think about the entire supply chain being sustainable. So they taught us. Um, I don't know the exact contribution we made off the top of my head. I'm not hiding it from you. I think if we've reported it, we, I can find that for you, but I don't recall it off the top of my head. Um, the person did ask a great question about packaging again. I think packaging for me is a frustration as a manufacturer and a consumer because it would be not terrific to just give you that Burt's Bees lip balm and somehow have you not need that plastic container or get the Clorox liquid to your home somehow and you could put it into a bottle that you have. But we don't have a way to do that yet. What we do do is we do sell a lot of large sizes. In fact, increasingly consumers buy large sizes. We do work on recyclable packaging, recycled content, and I think we're going to keep pushing that way. And I think there are going to be more and more innovations in packaging, maybe some big breakthrough ones with new materials that are biodegradable and cost-effective and functional, but maybe just small things like continually making packaging thinner, um, you know, things like that, which I think can make a big difference if you do it across lots of households year after year after year. Beth Springer is Executive Vice President at Clorox. Andy Ball, we have a question for you about, is it more cost-effective to modify an existing building to meet LEED requirements or to tear it down and rebuild it with LEED standards? It's more expensive to modify an existing building. Um, but it, it, again, with LEED, it's, it's sort of where is that building located that, that starts the whole chain of events and what was its prior use. And so in making that very general statement, I could also turn around and say there would be examples of buildings that are existing downtown that would be uh, cheaper to retrofit to lead than to go out into the countryside and build an entirely new building. So every case is different. That's why we have uh, lead accredited professionals on staff to go through and do a point evaluation. And in fact, if you have a building you're looking at, we can go in and say, and if you're going to build a new one, this is what it would cost. And if you're looking at retrofitting one, uh, this is what it would cost. But every single business on a daily basis can go through, and as you buy carpet, you can, you can buy sustainable carpet. As you buy furniture, you can buy furniture that's from uh, sustainably harvested wood that doesn't have formaldehyde in it and a lot of different things. And, and I've learned a lot from our internal green people is I've uh, gone through and said, well, we need to get another one of those. And they said, well, have you looked at this? And, in fact, the, uh, the very latest uh, in drinking fountains that we have, it's not... It's sort of not the glasses of water, but uh, we have this uh, drinking fountain. You just plug into the wall, and it produces water just from the humidity in the air. And uh, it uses so little. That would work in Texas real well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was wondering how it would work in, you know, maybe Arizona. Not, not, but they tell me it'll work uh, anywhere. And it's actually amazing. It's sort of like water from nowhere, and it uses just a minuscule amount. Of, uh, of energy. So there's always these creative ideas that, that, that the people are coming up with. And there's, again, it's every little thing that you can do uh, makes a difference. I think Andy makes a, a great point, too, that, you know, there are circumstances where you're not going to get a building to be LEED certified. Maybe you can't afford it. Maybe you're using an older building and has certain restrictions and you're not going to get there. What I think has been terrific about LEED and some of the other standards, though, is it's a point system. Mm -hmm. And you can take the first step. So you can take that list and you can say, I can do that. I can buy that kind of carpet. I can do that. I can harvest light. I can do this. And I think what it can do is make sure that we make progress all the time. And what I would hate to see, candidly, would be a lot of public criticism for every time a company doesn't go all the way to gold or platinum. Um, what I would want is to see pressure for people to continuously improve um, because we need to make things, um, I think, practical 
uh, particularly in this environment. And I think if we expect the change sometimes to be too bold at once, we end up getting nowhere, particularly in a bad economy. Yeah, so um, I'm all for LEED certified, um, but I also think we want to make sure you're making progress towards that. And if you yep. get somebody who got five points and they wouldn't have gotten five points before the LEED list existed, then that's a good thing. And it is. maybe next time we'll get 10. How much is, you mentioned San Francisco as an epicenter, Andy. How much is, is it spreading beyond San Francisco statewide? I know that there's some talk about making lead or zero energy, net zero energy for commercial buildings in the next 10, 20 years. Well, I was, we just put on a, a, a green uh, building conference at the Intercontinental Hotel, which we just finished, and um, we got a room for... Uh, 50 people, and we ended up having 52. I was amazed at, at everybody that came to that. And we, and Tom Siebel uh, was a keynote speaker, and uh, he is issuing uh, a challenge, which will be coming out shortly, and a $20 million prize for who right. can ever come up with uh, a zero-energy house. And that is a good place to start. And, uh, you know, people say, oh, we can do that, sure. I mean, you can just stick the house over a geothermal vent, and you've got the whole thing. It's... You, endless energy but this has to be at no additional cost at no reduction in uh, b the basic comforts of an everyday house so it's sort of saying how would you live today and just take that and live in a house that has basically the same feel uh, and environment and but that's a zero energy use house and so it's really laying down a challenge that at first seems that it would be fairly easy to meet but then goes beyond that and we have the same issues in going to a zero energy building and I think the, the first part, and this is something that everybody can do, is if you don't let the heat or the cold in and you don't let the, the hot or the cold out, in other words, insulation is really, really the first and, and most significantly important thing that you can do. You can just go through and, and you can weather seal and you can insulate. And insulation doesn't need to be that nasty fiberglass stuff that's really uncomfortable. What we used at the California Academy was uh, recycled Levi's. It's blue denim that got blown into the walls. And even after being treated so it doesn't have mold or anything else, it's still a great product and, and very environmentally friendly. So there's a lot of fun things you can do. Andy Ball is CEO of WebCore Builders. We're discussing sustainability at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Another question from the audience. In all your businesses, you use trucks, many 18-wheelers. Have you considered changing trucks to run on natural gas, as described by Boom Pickens at the Commonwealth Club, or perhaps biodiesel or other things? So what, do you, what about your transportation imprint? Well, uh, we have no better example of that than right here in the Bay Area. Uh, we have our Altamont landfill, which, uh, uh, as you all go through Altamont Pass, uh, we've done a lot of different things there. We've got windmills, we've got landfill gas to energy, but one of the other things that we're doing is we are uh, taking that landfill gas, the waste that you give us that produces methane, and we're taking that methane and we're converting it to LNG. That LNG will actually fuel the trucks that will go back out and pick up your waste uh, throughout the Bay Area. So. Uh, we, have a, we have the largest LNG fleet in our industry, uh, second largest in the United States, and uh, now the key is trying to close that loop, right? There's, we have the second largest fleet, but we have the only fleet that can be powered by the exact thing that it's picking up. Think about That's that. That's pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, and so uh, uh, we're doing a lot of work with landfill gas to LNG, landfill gas to diesel to do just that, to close the loop to where we can pick up your waste take it, convert the fuel that we can use to go back and pick up your waste again. But what percentage of your total fleet runs on an alternative fuel, CNG, biodiesel, et cetera? Uh, of our total fleet, probably a small, probably 10% of our fleet, uh, not a huge percentage, and it's, it's primarily driven by regulation. Again, it's another area where it costs more, and you have to have the infrastructure, right? You have to have the LNG infrastructure. So uh, primarily in California and in some other areas where you have uh, air quality issues uh, will run that fleet. It's, it's, it's not big enough. You know, one of the things that we've done, part of the issue is that, that uh, you don't have, the, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing to me that you don't have, we've never tasked the truck industry to say, how do we make a more fuel-efficient truck? Uh, what we've basically said is, look, we're, we're spending $500 million a year, uh, you know, on trucks. Uh, we're going to take that spend, and we're going to do sort of the same thing that Andy was talking about with building. We're going to incentivize our truck deal, our, our truck manufacturers to say, look, we can't create an LNG truck. You all need to help us create a more fuel efficient, a lighter, you know, use composite materials, 
whatever you need to do to get us a more fuel-efficient truck, and the manufacturer that wins that race gets our $5 billion prize because we're going to, you know, over 10 years, we're going to spend $5 billion on trucks. And so we've uh, tasked our manufacturers to say, help us produce a more fuel-efficient truck. So, you know, we'd love to get that 10% up to So 100%. that's going to happen. That, that's you've put that well, out, that challenge to your... We've put out that challenge to our manufacturers, and if, if they want our business, if they want, you know, the, the bulk of our business, that $5 billion, they can give us a more fuel-efficient truck. You think your, your buy is big enough in an overall industry to, to, to do that? If $5 billion doesn't get your attention, uh, you know, you might need well, to look depends. to the government for money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, probably already, they probably already have. Um, other transportation? We, we don't own a fleet of trucks at Clorox. Um, you know, we buy our transportation from various uh, other third parties. Uh, we do have a small fleet of company cars, and they were all converted to hybrids last year, so we've made a small step there. Uh, we also do a lot of things to employ, encourage employees to commute together and take public transportation. And in terms of our real you know, transportation footprint, though, um, you know, we obviously look at cost, but we also do look at footprint. And so when we make the trade-off, for example, between truck and rail, it's a consideration uh, that in many cases rail, for example, has a lighter footprint. So we contribute, but I don't think we have quite the weight to throw around that Dave does in terms of getting truckers uh, to make different choices on their vehicles or the fuels they use. Or Andy, people think of construction sites. One of the images that comes to mind is a big cement truck. Uh, Maybe you don't own them, but uh, what about transportation and construction? Well, I tried to ride more miles on my bicycle than I I drive in my car, and we actually sponsor a a cycling club and bike-to-work day and so our, our our elemental transportation is a bicycle to start with which is very fuel efficient um, but we don't have a large fleet of trucks and we've done the same thing as Clorox we've we've tried to encourage people to buy hybrids so we give them a subsidy uh, a couple thousand dollars to go to a hybrid or a thousand dollars to uh, go to a smaller truck and then we purchased a fleet of hybrids and one of those is a, a CNG so that when you get into the office you we make everybody get together in you know, five people in, in a hybrid and drive to wherever you're going to go for your meetings. And so that where we can control uh, where people are going in vehicles, we try to uh, have responsible use. The, the point I'd like to make, though, is I think the bigger play is what the fuel is actually being used in that vehicle. We've had very misguided fuel policies by our government relative to uh, food product corn ethanol which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible on a number of fronts. It's, it's very energy inefficient. It takes a lot to produce. It's very caustic. It's hard to transport. Um, it it, uh, it has, uh, doesn't provide any benefit on the uh, global warming potential, as opposed to you could get something like a 96% improvement. You actually started to go with cellulostic uh, biofuels and start to look at different ways where you could not use a food uh, product to uh, convert in, into a biofuel or ethanol. And uh, so I think that we need to look at the fuel that's going into some of these cars and say that's really where the big power play is. And we need to get the government to start to be more responsible about the, uh, the, the energy management policies that they have at the Department of Transportation. Are you willing to, or have you advocated in that direction as, as, a, as, a, as a CEO to say that uh, there are? I was, I was uh, part of a 50-member panel of the Bay Area Council. We went back to uh, Washington, D.C. We sat down at the Department of Transportation, and we went through their energy policies, and I said exactly that. And the reception was? You know, um, <laughs> we should look into that. Now, they, they, they are, uh, I think... Uh, there's a lot of new people there. The, the people I was talking to were there anywhere from three weeks to three days. They uh, are trying to feel their way around. There's a lot of uh, statements that Obama is making. It takes a while for that to actually become policy. And uh, there's a lot of money that's being handed out. And uh, Washington is in turmoil right now. So I think that everybody can, has to continue to, to, to speak out. We talked to uh, Pelosi, to Boxer, uh, Feinstein said, you know, this is, this is our perception. This is what we think needs to be done, and this is how you can help. And uh, we, I think we continue to need to drive to good, responsible solutions because some of them in the past haven't been that. We're at the end of our time here and have time just for one last question, which kind of brings us back to the question from the audience that reminds us why we're having this conversation, the big picture 
where we could do lots of these incremental things. Some of them feel good. Some of them make sense. But we're not solving the big problem. Uh, from the audience, some climate change experts say that irreversible damage will be done by as soon as 2015 to do the human impact, making severe negative consequences unavoidable. The question is, you know, what's the point of return? Where do you get your science? And how do you connect what you're doing to sort of the big problem? I think it's kind of scary, and I'll just lead this off. If you look at the, uh, the level of CO2 in the environment, go back historically when it was at the same level, the oceans were 80 feet higher. So I think what the big question is that nobody can answer is what is the connection, is the trailing or leading effect of the CO2 in the environment as to what the temperature is and, and to the, the level of the water. So although I don't think that there is a definitive answer for that, in Washington with the scientists that we talk to uh, or a lot of the, 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 the experts, I think that we have to continue to do what is responsible within the realms of what we can do. And again, I come back to you have to do your part. Everybody can do your part. No matter what business you're in, as an individual, uh, you need to do your part. And it's all about being responsible in your practices and constantly driving to drive forward to practices that are efficient, uh, friendly, environmentally friendly, and sustainable. Dave Steiner, are we doing enough, and is it enough to, to stay within what we think we can do, or do we need to expand the notion of what we can do with looking at something as severe as what? You know, i got to tell you, I had, uh, before coming here today and spending some time with Beth and Andy, I had met Beth or Andy, and, and I didn't know what their companies were doing from a sustainability point of view. Uh, i got to tell you, uh, I couldn't be more proud to be on this panel because they're doing some amazing things. Look, Everything is an incremental step, right? I mean, every, every great flame starts with a few candles, right? Every movement starts with a candle and turns into a flame. These folks are burning some pretty bright candles, and I'm an eternal optimist. I think if we all do our part, look, and the planet Earth is pretty darn resilient. I think if we all do our part, we'll be okay. And I got to tell you, sitting up here with these two folks on this panel, uh, gives me a hell of a lot of hope. Beth? Well, thanks, Dave. And, uh, you know, I think being here in San Francisco also gives us a lot of hope. <laughs> and I think it gives us hope, uh, frankly, that we can continue to make all the little changes that we make personally at home and that we make at work and that we can also aspire. We can aspire as individuals to the bigger impacts that we could make, be that through how we vote or how we volunteer or maybe we're scientists. And we can aspire inside of corporations. And I think forums like this foster corporate aspiration because we see what other people are doing, we share ideas, and it gives you the courage to set the bigger goal. Maybe it's a bigger goal you don't go public with day one, but you keep raising the bar. And uh, I think that's, that's what we have to do. Our thanks to Beth Springer, Executive Vice President of Clorox, Dave Steiner, CEO of Waste Management, and Andy Ball, CEO of WebCore Builders. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you.